welcome to volume 40, number 37 of Grapevine, brought to you by the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. This is online version number 25, recorded on the 11th of September 2020. And in this week's news, could raising the Haven Bridge resort to the old original lift mechanism from last week's romance on the roller coaster to all the frights of the fair? And the local virus situation is showing an encouraging trend. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader Aileen. Plus, once again, Dusty and Julia with us with some bits and pieces left over from last week. But first, the news. Well, hello everyone, this is Aileen. I'm coming to you from my home and giving you news from the week ending the 11th of September. Can't quite believe we're in September, except it does feel a bit like maritime weather. A bit cooler in the evenings, darker, a little bit of wind. However, then I see we're expecting some strong hot weather next week, so who knows? And again, there's more COVID news, some of it not great, although things have been okay, and tourism businesses may not make it through 2020 despite a record-setting year. Parts of the region's multi-billion pound tourism industry could crumble in the coming months, bosses have warned, despite seeing an all-time record year in 2019. Last year, a 3% growth in Norfolk and 4% in Suffolk saw more people employed in the industry than ever before. 69,000 north of the border and 44,000 south of it. However, bosses have given stark warning that despite a recent upturn in staycations, the coronavirus pandemic has left the industry bracing itself for a sharp decline. Peter Waters, Executive Director of Visit East of England, has urged the government to continue VAT reduction throughout the winter and continue a reduced-level furlough scheme until the spring, saying this is the only way it might have a fighting chance. He said although the last few months have been good, they won't make up for the three months of no income for the sector. If all government support ends next month, then some businesses may not make it through and many more jobs will be lost. If that happens, it will take years before we see 2019 figures again. These figures saw 84 million day trips made in Norfolk and Suffolk and 49 million overnight trips. And tourism employment provides more than 1 in 10 jobs region-wide. He added the figures demonstrate the vital importance of the visitor economy to Norfolk and Suffolk. But we know that 2020 will see a sharp decline and we are not out of the woods yet. Peter Williamson, the chairman of the Norfolk and Suffolk Tourist Attractions, added, It's such a shame that following a fantastic 2019, we have had the 2020 tourist season destroyed by COVID-19. The recovery of our industry has started well, but there is a very long and difficult winter for the industry to get through. Nonetheless, we are positive for 2021. And Ruth Knight, chairman of the Visit the Broads, added that 2020 has been catastrophic for tourism in the region. Now, a little art story. Art fans snap up free paintings dotted around the town. Paintings worth an estimated £1,000 were given away to anyone who stopped and picked one up in multiple town centre locations across Norfolk and Waveney. In some cases, contemporary artist greater than Acker Justin Peach looked on at a distance as people either walked past warily or snapped up a painting, sharing their good fortune on social media. Mr Peach, who lives with his wife and four children in Hopton, said he hoped his actions had piqued people's interest in art. He said a ten-year-old girl picked up a portrait of the Queen, and that is lovely. Whether she likes it or not, or hangs it up, or decides to give it away, it might encourage her to think about what she likes, or to paint something herself. The 40-year-old, who paints under the name Greater Than, in homepage to the phrase, Love is Greater Than Money, 
said it had been fascinating to see how people responded to the giveaway. In all, he put out some 16 paintings across Yarmouth, Galston, Bradwell, Lowestoft and Carlton Colville on Sunday the 6th of August. Although there was a practical side to the giveaway which would free up studio space, there was some artistic thinking behind it. Leaving his canvases in urban spots was a kind of temporary graffiti that hoped to plant a seed of appreciation in the eyes of people who maybe thought it was beyond their pocket or that art wasn't for them, he said. Many people would be happy to go into a high street shop and pay for a print when in fact they could get some original work by a real artist that no one else has for less, he said. At Great Yarmouth Marketplace, he left a David Bowie portrait. He thought we'd be carried off straight away. In fact, he watched as dozens of people walked past it, uncertain of the free offer and worried about the catch. He left Sid Vicious outside East Norfolk Sixth Form College and watched as a string of people of all ages stopped to consider it before it was tucked under someone's arm. I enjoyed painting them in the first place. I enjoyed putting them out and I enjoyed people's responses. I would have tried to sell them, but I made people happy, he added. As the day progressed, the lucky finders started to post photos and comments on his Greater Than page. Lisa Horton from Galston wrote, Sorry, I got greedy. I managed to get two. So pleased with these two fantastic paintings. Going to hang them up now. Gemma Morton Hill wrote Amazing Art, Cheers, Greater Than, and included a picture of her daughter Macy holding a blue pop-up portrait of the Queen. The giveaway also celebrated a year as a professional artist after people started seeing his work on social media and wanted some for themselves. Well, I think that's fabulous. It's like a treasure hunt, isn't it? Now, volunteers rescue a feisty seal with a rubber ring round its neck. A feisty seal with a rubber ring embedded round his neck has been saved from severe injury by volunteers. The adult male, thought to be around four years old, was rescued on Saturday afternoon, September the 5th, on the beach at Horsey, when a specialist team attended with seal catching equipment and managed to secure the animal. Peter Ansell, chairman of Friends of Horsey Seals, said, We got a call on Saturday saying it was there. We knew about it from previous experience. Luckily, he was not in the bunch, but on the edge, so we thought we had a chance and nipped in quickly and took it in the net. Mr Ansell said a rubber ring or gasket about six to eight inches in diameter was stuck tight around the seal's neck. When we pounced on it, I cut the gasket off, he said. It went flying back to sea with great speed. Mr Ansell said the seal's injuries so far were superficial. His colleagues and vice chairman of the group, David Wise, said the seal was feisty. Fortunately, there was no injury or open wound and it was thankfully released back into the sea. Mr Ansell said at least six other seals on the beach still have various objects, including rings and netting around their necks. But the volunteers cannot help the animals when they are still in the pack, he said. If it's a bunch of 20 to 40 seals, as soon as we go near, they're spooked and they're in the water before we get a chance. We have to bide our time, wait until they are isolated, when we have a reasonable chance of getting to them. We're keeping an eye on them, he added. Mr Ansell advised members of the public to call only if they spot seals when they are out of or on the edge of the bunch. Now, the actual number of new coronavirus cases falls in Norfolk, which is good news. Coronavirus cases have seen a fall in most areas where Bannum Poultry's workforce live, according to new figures. The figures for the seven days to September the 4th are based on tests carried out in laboratories and in the wider community. The rate is expressed as the number of new cases per 100,000 people. The number of cases fell in Great Yarmouth and Breckland to 18 in each area after reported 31 and 40 cases in the seven days to August the 31st. The number of cases in Great Yarmouth sees its infection rate stand at 18 cases per 100,000 people, 
the highest in Norfolk, but a significant fall from the previous week of 31 cases per 100,000. The total showed 68 new cases across Norfolk in the last seven days to September the 4th. In Norwich, the rate increased from 13 to 14, due to two new cases since the previous seven-day total. It comes as the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, has expressed concern about the rising number of cases in the UK. Health leaders have warned, there has been a rise in cases in young people aged 17 to 21. People have relaxed too much, he said. Now is the time for us to re-engage and realise that this is a continuing threat to us. It's all very well saying that hospital admissions and deaths are at a very low level in the UK, which is true. But if we took further into the European Union, we can see that where case numbers rise initially in the younger parts of the population, they do in turn filter through and start to give elevated rates of disease and hospital admissions in the older age groups. And we know that then that becomes a serious public health problem. That's my concern, that if we don't get on top of this, if people don't start to take this seriously, then there is a risk that that's where we will end up. At a council meeting on Monday, it was said that the outbreak at the poultry factory had been contained. Leader Andrew Proctor said the increased number of infections in Norfolk, Breckland and Great Yarmouth were all linked to workers and their households. South Norfolk also saw a small increase in its rate after reporting 12 new cases. The rates were much lower in other parts of the county. Broadland's rise rose slightly from 3.8 to 3.1, from five new cases up from four in the previous seven days. West Norfolk's rate fell from four cases to 2.6 with the two new cases in North Norfolk, meaning that the rate there went from 0 to 1.9 per 100,000. However, for comparison, the rates in Norfolk are still way lower than some other parts of the country. It is all a bit confusing, I get that, all these figures. It is, it is hard to understand. Now, Halloween is not far away. A theme park is pulling out all the stops for Halloween, with costumed actors and spooky projections adding an extra fear factor. Fairground Frights is running from October the 28th to the 31st at Great Yarmouth's Pleasure Beach and is being staged with the help of an events producer responsible for, for some of the county's most high-profile and spectacular shows and experiences. Bosses are promising a host of spooky surprises chiming with the Halloween theme with light projections and family-friendly scares. Aaron Jones, the Pleasure Beach's marketing director, said Fairground Frights is a first for us in Great Yarmouth. Halloween is proving more and more popular and we thought this would be a great chance to showcase the park in the autumn while offering something a bit different. We have worked hard to come up with some exciting ideas, make sure all the scares are socially distanced and safe and we hope everyone has a suitably sinister time in their bubbles. Visitors are also being encouraged to dress up as ghosts, schools or someone sinister, with prizes available for the best spooky outfits. Mr Jones lived in America for several years and said Halloween was a major part of the US calendar. He said it is a major family event over there and I wanted to bring a flavour of that to the Pleasure Beach. It is all about family-friendly scares and that is what we are offering on the seafront. Fairground Frights will be open to those aged five and over, with spooky fun for younger visitors from 12 till 4pm across the October half-term. Helping to stage Fairground Frights is Norfolk-based events producer Ollie George, known for the concert and events season at Tavram Hall and the Norfolk Showground, and for collaborating on the Polar Express train experiences. Mr Jones added, we are really pleased to partner with Ollie and his team on this. Their experience of theatre, events and family entertainment will help us create plenty of family frights. 
Tickets are priced £17 each and will be available via www.pleasure-beach.co.uk from September the 4th. Now football season's off again and the stress and anxiety of beating football sessions kicks off again. A football programme aimed at helping men deal with stress and anxiety has kicked off again after suspension during the pandemic. All to play for sessions are relaunched in Norwich and Great Yarmouth on September the 7th, giving men a chance to get a good kickabout and socialise with others. The weekly sessions are free to drop into, but have been on hold since March when lockdown measures were put in place. Active Norfolk Project Officer Sam Watts, who administers the programme alongside Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, said the return of the sessions is an important step in helping local men deal with the pressures and stress that will have been mounting due to the pandemic. With the new safety guidance in place, we are ready to welcome other men who feel they could benefit from the programme. Three programmes started this week in Norwich at Gulls, Open Academy in Heartsease and the FDC in Bothorpe, as well as a session in Great Yarmouth at the Wellesley Sports Ground. All are free to attend and no referrals are required. Thanks, Aileen. Well, um, as I explained last week, Margaret, the news, takes the grapevine recorder to Dusty's sitting room when it's her news reading stint. And apparently, so enthusiastic are Dusty, Margaret and Julie that they come up with increasing amounts to record. Last week was no exception, and so here's Dusty with some thoughts on children. We have a, a, a prayer request board in the hospital at the chapel at the back, people put their prayer requests on it and just recently there's been several requests for little babies who are poorly and it made me think about children and another thing that prompted me to sort of share this with you was that I was going through a box of my late partner's special things the other day and I found some words about children they reminded me of the hundreds of young people that we were privileged to become involved with in our theatre company, and of the perception that they have of the world, often at a very young age. And some of the things they say are amusing, and sometimes very profound. I remember my partner telling me that uh, many years ago, when her husband was in the police force, and she herself was a, a solicitor's secretary, that when her daughter was asked at school what her parents did, she happily replied, my daddy is a police one station and my mummy uh, solicits. Whoops. <laughs> but then we think about other things that children think about and they can be very serious. And just recently some younger children were asked about their opinion on war. In the words of the poet Robert Southery, Now tell us all about the war and what they fought each other for. So here are a few choice replies. It is where people disagree and start a fight. This fight turns into a battle and this involves weapons which becomes a war. Another one said, a load of bangs, booms and smashes for no reason and it never gets anyone anywhere. Another one said, there are wars when my sister starts to sing. Wars are things which start when prime ministers argue. In the last war, Britain fought the Nazis. <laughs> wars are about good and evil. Wars are where people go and annoy themselves and everybody else by killing each other. They ruin countless countries and people's feelings. Wars are terrible fights like me and my brother have sometimes. <laughs> Sounds a bit like um, old Terry Scott, doesn't it? 
<laughs> Wars are big arguments that are even worse than me and my brother, and that's got to be bad. Wars are started by immature decisions made by people who just should sit down and work it out instead of bringing innocent people into it. Well, out mm. of the mouths of babes we hear the truth, don't we? So I'll just end this little piece with um, a piece that I also found in that special box. And I think it's very true um, today as even when it was put there. Children learn what they live. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with ridicule, he learns to be shy. If a child lives with shame, he learns to feel guilty. If a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. And if a child lives with encouragement, he learns confidence. If a child lives with praise, he learns to appreciate. And if a child lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith. And if a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. If a child lives with acceptance and friendship, he learns to find love in the world. Wise words, don't you think? Never was there a time when acceptance and friendship was more needed. So perhaps we should all make sure that we do our bit to spread it far and wide. So I want you to keep well, keep safe and keep on loving. Many thanks, Dusty. A piece from Julie a bit later. Yes, and that's Julie, not Judith, as I erroneously named her last week. <laughs> Sorry, Julie. OK, it's back to Aileen for the second part of the news. Now, an article about school buses. A mother of two endured a stressful morning watching bus after bus drive past before having to walk her six-year-old son 45 minutes to school. Meanwhile, bus operators are urging people to travel outside peak times where possible to allow children to get to lessons, as buses still run at least under half their regular capacity. Melody Moran, who lives on Beatty Road in Great Yarmouth, normally uses the bus to take her son Maxie to Caister Infant and Junior School. But on both Monday and Tuesday morning, September the 8th and 9th, she watched as four buses drove past. She said, I can't drive due to a heart condition and my husband works full time and has very early starts, so he cannot drive us either, so I rely on the public transport. After waiting ages and more and more buses just saying bus full on the app, we had no choice but to walk from Beatty Road in Great Yarmouth along the main road to Caister. I also had my one-year-old son in a pram with me and continued to walk on the opposite side of the road to flag down any buses still that might have space for us, but all drove past, half empty, saying full because of the 50% capacity. Ms Moran said she had prepaid for her tickets on the first bus app and had to walk instead. I don't mind walking, but that route is extremely dangerous with children and takes 45 minutes along a busy main road. I understand that coronavirus is causing huge problems for everyone and the bus company is trying to comply with social distancing rules for public safety, but it's just not working. Chris Speed, head of operations at Eastern Counties, said although it may be frustrating, we are advising people where possible to travel outside of the peak times and urge schools and businesses to be flexible with start and finish times to help us to get people to their destination safely. Where we are experiencing higher demand on some services, which was expected but undetermined, we are discussing additional provision where needed with Norfolk County Council to facilitate student travel. Mr Speed said the company has added additional buses to its fleet to help manage capacity. In addition to the dedicated school buses that we have been assigned by the local authority, 
We are running our normal commercially operated services with many running close to schools and colleges en route to outbound destinations that students can use for travel, he added. Now a planning inspector rejects a hotel owner's appeal to turn a building into flats. The planning inspectorate has rejected a seafront hotel owner's appeal to turn his eyesore holiday accommodation into residential flats over fears it would damage the tourist economy. Yannick Masrani proposed to convert one of the two buildings which make up the Sea Princess on North Drive, Great Yarmouth, into ten flats, but it was refused by Yarmouth Borough Council's Development Control Committee in October last year, citing fears of overdevelopment and the plan's incompatibility with holiday accommodation policies. Now, Mr Masrani's appeal to the Planning Inspectorate challenging the Borough Council's refusal has also been dismissed. In response, Mr Masrani said, Of course I am disappointed with the decision that's been made, but I do not wish to comment further at this stage. Inspector Price, in a decision notice issued on August the 27th, said Mr Masrani's plans to turn part of the annex building into flats would conflict with Great Yarmouth's role as one of the nation's main seaside holiday resorts. In the document... Mr Price outlined the property is within a primary holiday accommodation area designated in the 2001 Great Yarmouth Borough-wide local plan. This policy, known as HOU 22, says the conversion of use of properties to permanent residential uses within primary holiday accommodation areas will not be permitted in an effort to preserve prime holiday accommodation. Under the reasons for which Mr Price dismissed the appeal, he said the increasing residential development would come at the expense of hotel frontage. But a design and access statement submitted as part of the application, which Mr Masrani lodged in July 2018, said sales from the flats would drive investment in the main hotel, adding at the moment both buildings are an eyesore. It goes on, with the amount of profits made, it is impossible to cover any wear and tear, let alone any badly needed renovations to keep in line as to what the tourists need and the expectations of Yarmouth Borough Council as decent accommodation. Please refer to comments made on TripAdvisor and Booking.com. The Sea Princess Hotel is badly in need of repair. Between June 17 and May 19, 23 reports were made to environmental health officers at the Borough Council regarding the Sea Princess with complaints of bed bugs, leaky roofs and a rat in the kitchen. Now, Seaside Boot Camp could reboot mental health. People were given the chance to help reboot mental health during lockdown with a fundraiser boot camp. The event was held in Hemsby on Friday, September the 11th and was open to all ages and abilities with activities ranging from circuits tyre pull, ropes and yoga in two 45-minute sessions. James Bensley, a borough councillor who is open about his own mental health issues, said the fundraiser for Mind was being staged by the Village Co-op Store and the Richardson's Holiday Park. It took place on Holiday Park land towards the bottom of Beach Road and saw Andrew Laban and his team of instructors putting participants through their paces. Sessions were limited to around 45 people and a donation of around £5 was suggested. Mr Bensley said the event was Covid safe and could be rolled out more regularly to visitors and locals if it proves a success. Now traffic chaos in Winterton apparently. A webcam showing queues and a blackboard advertising drivers of waiting times could solve some traffic problems in a seaside village. The suggestions made at a meeting at Winterton Paris Council follow a consultation held by councillors in the summer after complaints about roads frequently clogged by cars taking people to see the seals and the beach. The issue led last January to the introduction of new rules banning drivers from parking on the northern side of Beach Road, a narrow lane between the dunes all year round. Noel Gaylor, a Great Yarmouth Borough Councillor who attended the meeting, suggested using a webcam to see how long the queue was at peak times. Speaking on Monday, Mr Gaylor said we have webcams elsewhere in the borough, 
There are a couple on Marine Parade in Great Yarmouth. I just feel it would be an economical way of allowing people to see what's happening in Winterton. He said there were at least three places in the village, the Coast Guard Hutch, the Beach Cafe and the Village Hall where the webcam could be placed. People thinking of going to Winterton would be able to have a look at an up-to-date state of the traffic, the number of people queuing and the parking. It would be good for this purpose, he said. At the meeting on August the 26th, Member of the Parish Council, Nigel Coe, said he was pleased that over 150 people, as well as local police, had attended the consultation event. Minutes also state that cones were mentioned as a way that could alleviate parking on junctions, while a blackboard provided by the council could inform people of the car park waiting times. The village had been plagued in the past with parking issues, during Christmas 2017, there were chaotic scenes when cars blocked the road and were driven over the pavement onto the dunes. Earlier this year, nails were found on Beach Road, with speculation that they had been left there by a disgruntled villager. And it's true to say, parking upsets everybody all the time. Now, new images have been released of the £26 million Seafront Leisure Centre as the opening date is pushed back. The target opening date of Great Yarmouth's new £26 million Leisure Centre complex has been pushed back to 2022. The officials say work will start this autumn, affecting the time frame to complete the project. The update on Great Yarmouth Borough Council's website came as hoardings went up at the Golden Mile site, tracing the resort's holiday history and featuring new images of the build. It's the second time the project to build the new water and leisure complex on the landmark Marina Centre site has been delayed. Originally, council bosses said it would be ready by summer 2021, pushing it back to winter next year after the discovery of asbestos. The new leisure facility, set to take the same Marina Centre name, is billed as a once-in-a-generation opportunity. It will be around a third of the size of the previous facility with curling water slides and a splash pad fun park. The old centre closed in October 19 and the site has been completely levelled, opening up views to the beach not seen for 40 years and creating a tourist attraction in itself. As well as trumpeting the new leisure centre that will soon be taking shape behind them, the hoardings will act as a blank canvas for artists looking to make their mark, the authorities said. The council is decorating the Marine Parade frontage with a 185-metre artwork wrap showcasing the resort of yesteryear and things people can do and see today. Meanwhile, along the beachside frontage, the ambition is to commission a local artist to work with the community to create an exhibition which could potentially be used within the new centre. An artist dubbed Yarmouth Banksy has already had added his works to the hoardings. Carl Smith and Trevor Wainwright, leaders of the main political groups, tagged it an exciting project milestone, adding, despite the additional challenges of COVID, which unavoidably impacted the availability of hoarding boards, the council's project team has done incredibly well to keep everything moving forward. Currently, the council is progressing procurement on the construction contract award and we are aiming for start on the site this autumn. Earlier this year, the guidance was that contractors aim to be on site by July. According to the borough council's website, the target opening date has been revised to 2022. Any artists are asked to contact julia.devonshire at great-yarmouth.gov.uk Now, on the ball Yarmouth, bloaters fans now have their own anthematic song. Liverpool FC has You'll Never Walk Alone and Norwich has On the Ball City. And now fans of Great Yarmouth Town can belt out a new terrace tune celebrating their unexpected success more than half a century ago. 
Great Yarmouth Town's win against Crystal Palace in the first round of the FA Cup in 1953 remains the stuff of legend. The bloater's proud victory has now been the inspiration for its first anthemic, I think you say, football song, complete with a catchy chorus its writer hopes will get the whole town singing. Matthew Seeley's Down the Wellesley came about as part of a research project involving Herringhouse Trust and the Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust, looking into the history of the ground, whose grandstand dates to 1890. Having been approached to write a song, he decided to focus on the famous FA Cup win of 1953, when some 9,000 fans packed into the venue with fishing boxes piled up to make stands. The upset remains the team's most significant win to date, with the home crowd stunned to witness a 1-0 victory. But the chant-friendly chorus focuses on the joy of being a loyal fan, with win or lose, the bloaters are my team. Mr Seeley of Southtown Road, Great Yarmouth, said being a lifelong Norwich City fan was the perfect backdrop for a song whose lyrics were about being loyal, whatever the final score. The father of three has a passion for the town's heritage and said it was an honour to record the song, especially given the involvement of Herringhouse Trust, a charity that helps the homeless. On Saturday, the nostalgic song, written in the folk tradition inspired by Bob Dylan, will be played at the ground for the first time as the bloaters take on Sudbury Reserves in their second match of the season. Club manager Rob McComb said the club was keen to celebrate its heritage and roots as it looked to connect with new fans and that Down the Wellesley had come at the perfect time to help them to do that. He said the catchy chorus and simple melody, the hallmark of any good football chant, meant it was easy to pick up, adding, it will be nice to hear people singing it. One of the things that our chairman, Jack Jay, is keen to embrace is what the club has been about and having an iconic song is part of that. The Wellesley Ground, with its wooden stand, is reckoned to be the country's earliest surviving football grandstand. Today, they usually plays to a home crowd of around 100. The ground has reopened for supporters and kick-off on Saturday is at three o'clock. I almost wish I was able to sing it to you, but I'm a terrible singer and the words aren't listed here. But it's nice to know that someone is trying to rally support for Great Yarmouth FC. Thanks, Aileen. More news in a while. Firstly, though, that piece from Julie on... Growing up in a village. This is a little piece um, which I wrote in it, and it's called Village Life and, and I'd like to take you with me through the years. As a child of the 1950s I lived with my parents in Norwich until the age of nine when my mother's dream came true to move back to her native village. Each alternate weekend however was spent with my grandmother in Strompshaw. Where you ask? It's a small rural village down the A47 towards Norwich and all my mother's family still lived there or very close in surrounding villages. She was always a country girl at heart and just couldn't wait to return. Indeed much to the neighbours disdain whilst in terraced house daddy made a run where we kept chickens together in extremely verbal cockerel although of course they were happy to enjoy our eggs. Life was slower, gentler and certainly more fun in the country. My grandmother, who didn't like the titles of Nanny or Grandma, called herself Nangran and she was a throwback from Victorian strictness and determination but with a loving heart somewhere in there. There was one. My grandfather was a gentle giant, a recipe for disaster in a small cottage with low beams. A blacksmith with hands like bunches of bananas, rough and scarred, but when he held me I felt safe. One day he and I were sitting on the bottom of the winding staircase looking out of the window at an incredibly large moon and he softly said, one day there will be a man on the moon. And I remember thinking, 
Why would anyone want to do that when we can see it so well from here? My granddad was long suffering on a Sunday. Nan Gran ran our Sunday school and therefore after a breakfast of her horrendous porridge, honestly, you could lay bricks with it, it's dreadful, came the ritual of us donning our Sunday best, which in Nan Gran's case included some clip-on earrings, which pinched her lobes terribly, but it was almost like a penance each week to suffer them. As a devout Christian, she taught us our Gospels, Catechism, Beatitudes and Psalms. She loved to sing, so obviously young voices were soon trained into the pointing of psalms. Who on earth thought of that idea? Anyway, we did sing children's hymns like There's a Friend for Little Jesus, etc. But in her mind, we should be prepared for adult services. Many children came, whatever the weather, each week, soaking up knowledge. Clad in a grey two-piece costume, smart white blouse, black sensible shoes and topped with a grey bowler style hat, she commanded respect not only from the children but the community and feared I think sometimes by the vicar. After Sunday school she and I would attend morning service and then back to the cottage for lunch, probably a walk, a cold tea style meal prior to evensong. Oh my word, that is a lot of holy stuff for a child. I was taken to church almost as soon as I was born, parked up in my pram, in the aisle, so to me it was second nature. That leads me conveniently onto my chores. Every day, sticks for the fire needed to be collected from the adjoining wood. A sort of potato pulpy stuff was made for the chickens, Rabbit hutches needed cleaning and fresh water replaced for all the livestock. This was obtained from water bats, or Grandad drew it up for me in a bucket from their well. I recall how clear, crisp and refreshing it was. No rubbish chemicals, just pure water. They grew their own fruit and veg, so digging up, picking them, helping with prep was also one of my jobs. Bread. Nangran's choice, a large cap top, was delivered by a fellow in a huge wicker basket. Oh, and the aroma when he opened it was heavenly. Again, no e-numbers. It went stale very quickly, but it was delicious. Without electricity, all cooking was carried out on a small oil stove with two burners and a tiny oven. Miraculously, wonderful meals emerged, full of freshness, goodness and vibrant colours. Bums were incredible, with peaks rising like volcanoes. No indoor plumbing. The water closet loo way down the garden was simply a box with a hole on it, on which you sat with a bucket beneath. Once a week, the violet man, that's what Nangran called him, came with his cart to empty said contents. Just think how far we have come from that. We now have public loos whose doors open electronically and fresh automatically when one rises from the seat <clears throat> and even jets water across the floor to hygienically prepare for the next occupant. Now that's progress I do appreciate. Life evolved around the church. Jumble sales when folk queued up to roughly rummage through piles of off-cast clothes and shoes. A bric-a-bac stall basically full of what was then junk but would now fetch a fortune as antiques. Easter was a time we had new bonnets, white socks, new Sunday best shoes and frocks made by our mums. Nan Gran ensured that we were well aware of its biblical importance and that egg hunts were a very minor part. Summer fates were marvellous fun, held in the rectory gardens, copious stalls including fruit and veg, cakes, again bric-a-brac, adults rolled balls hopefully through small holes for a prize of a real pig. Best pet competitions and always a favourite with everyone. A children's fancy dress, no shop-bought outfits here. The ladies of the tea stall provided never-ending cuppers and squash throughout the whole proceedings. Harvest festivals, here we're back to harvest again, 
were amazing. The church decorated beautifully. Mixed aromas met you upon entering. At the altar, blessings of thanks were offered for each item of produce by his reverence. Christmas bazaars, carol singing around the village, ending up at the rectory for well-earned, hot, festive treats. Each church window lovingly decorated, all made more magical by the erection of a ginormous tree in front of the rude screen. Singing filled the rafters with carols. Snowball fights, go-kart races, tree climbing, mud pies, bonfires, these were halcyon childhood memories. I live in the same village to this day, and to be honest, apart from domestic modernisation, a bus more than twice a week, and a few more houses, the fundamental structure of our year hasn't changed. I'm so grateful that in some ways life here has almost stood still. Call me old-fashioned, but that's the way I like it. Thanks, Julie. Last part of today's news now. Here's Aileen. Now more building appeals. A bid to build 23 houses in a village have been recommended for approval. The houses would be built on the grounds of Beechcroft on Station Road in Ormsby and the proposal will be discussed next Wednesday, September the 16th at a meeting of Yarmouth Borough Council's Development Control Committee. The development would include 17 detached, 10 semi-detached and 6 affordable houses. The applicant already has approved for 7 detached homes in the garden and both schemes would be accessed from an extension to Foster Close. A report to the members of the committee outlined objections to the plan. Ormsby with Scrapby Parish Council has raised concerns over access, highways issues, road safety and overdevelopment. Neighbours and residents have noted the cumulative impact from other major new developments locally and the failure to properly consult all neighbours. Planners recommend approving outline planning permission to the site, stating the site at the edge of the village and density is therefore appropriately low. Approval would be subject to the developers providing approximately £70,000 for primary school education and £2,475 for contributions to the library service. Now, champion farmers reclaim their inter-club bragging rights. For the first time in four years, Stalham Farmers Club has won Norfolk's inter-club malting barley competition against their local rivals from Holt. Club champion George Gay of Moteby Farms in Thrigby near Great Yarmouth was awarded the Supreme Championship for his winning sample of Laureate Spring Barley grown in 2019. He beat defending champion William Mack of Hempstead Hall who had won Holt and District Farmer Club's Malting Barley Trophy again this year with another spring variety, Propino. Mr Mack took the inter-club trophy from Stalham in 2017 and has since retained it with a succession of impressive barley crops. The inter-club prize was awarded by Bob King of the Crisp Malting Group in Great Ryborough near Fakenham. The trophy should have been presented at Stalham Farmer Club's annual dinner in March, which has since been cancelled. There was also a success after 13 years for club president Thomas Love and his son William of Walcott Farms in the Potato Cup. Their crop of rooster variety pushed two-time winner Tim Patworth of LF Patworth in Felmingham into third place. The judge, Dennis Walsh, awarded second prize to Robin Baines with a crop of Innovator. In the highly contested competition for sugar beet growers, there was a first-time winner in the Cantley Cup. Bernie Ellis of Ellis and Son at Eastfield Farm in Hickling achieved the best overall result in the 1920 campaign, ahead of another former club chairman, Kevin Starkings of Beelau Green Farm, Coltishaw. In the whole beet crop category, John Tallowin of Hickling took the trophy from Alan Beck of Brunstead, who finished third, while L. F. Pampworths was second, Ken Matthews was the judge. The best two-acre concept was a close result, with Will Sands of HBS Farms finishing ahead of Richard Hurst of Ormsby. 
while Thomas Love's Walcott Farms was third. Sarah Bebb of British Sugar judged. Well, my goodness me, I never knew that all those competitions ever ran. It's interesting. Now, a bit of a ghost town. Yarmouth Racecourse director talks on life without crowds. On Ladies' Day at Great Yarmouth Racecourse, the tills would normally be ringing into the night. The event was originally scheduled for next Thursday, September the 17th, at the venue on Jellicoe Road, but like most other large gatherings has been cancelled. Glenn Tubby, director of the racecourse, said that crowd is the highest spend per head of the year. It's a great night for the bar and the restaurant. Horses will still race on the day with competition having resumed in June behind closed doors. But without the public, with the atmosphere, it just feels a little bit sterile, Mr Tubby said. It's a bit of a ghost town. The biggest crowd over the year would normally be 7,000. That would happen on the August bank holiday weekend while the lowest would be 1,500, the venue getting on an average of 2,500 visitors a day. It's a substantial amount of money we've lost this year, Mr Tubby said. Not only has the racecourse lost income from spectators, but also from cancelled events, weddings, school proms and conferences. Like most other businesses, Mr Tubby has had to furlough staff, with four permanent workers still on furlough. All the casual employees, the people who worked on race days, have been laid off. We don't know when we'll be able to employ casual staff again, he said. Mr Tubby started working at the race course as accountant in 2003 and took over as director in 2005. I've long had an interest in racing. The first time I went was in my early 20s, he said. The season runs until late October and then Mr Tubby and the others at the racecourse will have to wait for the government's advice on whether or not they can reopen to the public next April. Right up until the beginning of March we were still talking about plans for the year and booking people in, the director said. It was probably around the 20th of March things started to feel very negative and everything changed overnight. Hopefully the public will come back at some point, but that is unlikely this season. We'll have to look ahead till next April, he said. Now, there is a lane and a pavement closed for repairs. A lane and a pavement will be closed for a week to allow for repairs on a problem-plagued bridge, Great Yarmouth's Haven Bridge, which is currently broken down due to electrical issues and unable to raise to let large vessels pass through. Last month, the council announced that refurbishment worth £1.2 million will begin after Christmas, but some upgrades have been brought forward after the bridge failed a routine inspection carried out last month by the Health and Safety Executive, with concerns raised over switchboards on the site. There is a risk if the bridge is lifted, it may remain stuck in the open position, as safety concerns would prevent engineers from directly accessing the switchboards. The repair work, organised by Norfolk County Council, began on Thursday, September the 10th. It will see bridge technicians explore the possibility of bringing back into operation an existing hand-winding mechanism with suitable modifications, including motors, to power the mechanism. The mechanism, which dates back 90 years to when the bridge was built, had been taken out of use a number of years ago. The investigation work will require a temporary closure of one of the traffic lanes heading east towards Yarmouth until Friday, September the 18th from 7am to 4.30 each day. The path on the north side adjacent to the closed traffic lane will also be closed, but pedestrian access over the bridge will be maintained via the pavement on the south side. Once the investigation has been carried out, the council will know whether the option is feasible as a short-term means of operating the bridge periodically to allow vessels through. Although this will need to be at night with a full road closure because the hand-winding mechanism will take considerably longer to lift the bridge than normal. The repairs are scheduled to last until September the 18th. Last summer, the 90-year-old bridge froze while open, leading to chaos for motorists and pedestrians. Now a drug story. Two properties in the Great Yarmouth area have been issued with closure orders after complaints of drug and antisocial behaviour. 
A property in Primrose Way, Bradwell, has been subjected to a full closure order following reports of such activity at the address since October 19. The closure order means no one can enter or remain at the address for three months. Elsewhere, on Napoleon Place in Great Yarmouth, a property has been subjected to a partial closure order following ongoing complaints of drug activity. The order excludes all but the registered occupant and owner from entering or remaining at the address. The Great Yarmouth and Galston Safer Neighbourhood teams working with the Yarmouth Operational Partnership team were granted the orders at Yarmouth Magistrates Court on September the 3rd. Sergeant Christopher Giddens said the orders granted by the courts demonstrate that local neighbourhood teams will use all available powers and legislation to deal with antisocial behaviour and criminality linked to addresses. The public can be reassured that we will continue to target addresses and those responsible for these types of behaviour to protect and safeguard our communities. Now, buses are going to replace trains again. Seems to me like a lot of the public transport network is in a bit of a mess. Buses replaced trains between Norwich, Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft on Wednesday morning, September the 9th, after problems with the railways. They said disruption was expected until further notice. Greater Anglia and Network Rail apologised to people whose journeys had been affected by the disruption. Trains affected including the 7.32 and 8.47 from Yarmouth to Norwich, the 7.50 from Lowestoft to Norwich, the 7.55 from Norwich to Lowestoft and the 8.09 service from Norwich to Yarmouth. The 11.36 from Norwich to Great Yarmouth and the 12.17 from Yarmouth to Norwich were initially cancelled but were later reinstated. There's going to be a third McDonald's in Great Yarmouth. Plans for a McDonald's restaurant and drive through on a supermarket car park have been approved. The bid to bring another fast food outlet run by the franchise chain to Great Yarmouth brings the total number to three. The scheme at Asda in Acle New Road is said to create 35 full-time and 30 part-time jobs, according to the applicant. In determining the proposal, officers at Yarmouth Borough Council noted the new restaurant was not near any schools. Although it was noted it could lead to more traffic queuing in the area, a report said the impact was unlikely to be severe. The restaurant and drive through will sweep away 119 parking spaces, although 445 will remain. It will also involve the reconfigure of the click and collect area. In the papers, McDonald's say it is seeking to increase its representation in key locations. The restaurant will have an outdoor play and patio area and likely to be open 24 hours a day. Yarmouth already has two other McDonald's restaurants in the town, one at the town centre and one at Gapton Hall Retail Park. Now, that's all the news we've got for this week. Not quite so much COVID, but most of it related to COVID. I'm heading up north, if Nicola Sturgeon will allow me up to go and visit my mum in Dunblane and spend some time in Scotland with her. So I hope you keep well till I'm back. Can't believe how we're now nearing Christmas Still a worrying time for everyone, so stay safe, keep well, keep cheerful, and this is Aileen wishing you well. Bye for now. Well, that's all we have for you for this edition of Grapevine. Grapevine Volume 40, Number 37, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content, in the main, is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accepts responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Desney will be your newsreader next week and we hope that you will join us once again. So, from Aileen, Julie, Dusty and myself, it's bye for now. Have a great week and keep well and safe. Bye. Bye.